namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sankhang Namasami So after that build-up I had this afternoon from Rinpoche, I feel like <laughs> it's quite a driving seat here. <laughs> this is obviously the wheelless vehicle. Yes. But, uh, Well, uh, like um, Rinpoche, and uh, as I said uh, last night, I feel very um, delighted, uh, honored to be part of this uh, this great occasion. Um, uh, coming together, these uh, these two expressions of the of the Buddha Dharma. It is a uh, one of the. Uh, the beneficial aspects of, of life in the late 20th century, um, as Rinpoche was saying, there's a few good elements to the technological world. And uh, one of the most marvelous things is the, um, the meeting of different, uh, different traditions, uh, the coming together of different Buddhist traditions, different spiritual traditions generally. Uh, I, I was reminded of this. Um, uh, yesterday evening, um, sometime shortly before seven o'clock, I was sitting in my room, and uh, I heard this kind of loud thumping noise. And uh, coming from a monastery where we've been doing a lot of earth moving recently, I thought, they're moving the heavy equipment in? Seven in the evening? Imagining some large yellow and mechanical devices rolling up the, the road to the retreat center. I thought, what is that? It's kind of some huge great engine of some kind, kind of bang, 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 bang. What could that be? Then that stopped. Then there was this loud trumpeting noise. I thought, oh, maybe it's one of those kind of Zogchen parties. <laughs> maybe they thought they shouldn't invite the bhikkhus along to, to kind of... I thought they had one of these at the end rather than at the beginning. I thought, what could this be? You know, these loud, raucous shouts and hurrahs. And I thought, well, I guess I'll find out at some point. And then, uh, and slowly it, uh, it, uh, it dawned on me, or something reminded me a few hours later that uh, it was the uh, beginning of the Jewish New Year, which I was uh, kind of unconscious of. I thought, oh, they, need to, they have something to do with uh, blowing horns and banging drums, so you know, maybe that's it. And then uh, Rim, today Rinpoche was talking about when the Buddha was invited by the Brahma gods to, to come and teach. They, gave him a, they came along with a conch, a conch horn, and a, and a dharma wheel to, uh, to invite the Buddha to teach. I thought maybe that was... Uh, it wasn't Jewish New Year after all. Maybe it was the Brahma gods coming down with their conches and their, <laughs> and their Dharma wheels to, to invite the teaching. Well, this um, amazing time that we live in, of the, the uh, a kind of camaraderie that can exist between different spiritual traditions, uh, both within the Buddhist world and between traditions. This is a, a wonderful and, and uh, precious time because uh, principally so that um, 
it encourages us to uh, say, see beyond the, um, the externals of a spiritual tradition. And this is always the, the kind of conundrum that we live with, is both having the, the verbal teachings and the traditions and structures which enable the insights and uh, uh, values to be carried through time and through, uh, through space across the, the planet, but also then those same structures become things that inhibit and uh, obstruct you know, the very truths that they're trying to convey. So in, in many ways we're extremely lucky in the West that Buddhism is so new, and obviously many people here will have reflected on this, that th these, are the, these are the good days. You know, in a hundred years' time, it will all be, you know, we have a Buddhist president, and, <laughs> you know, there will be kind of big grants from, you know, philanthropists, and it will all become institutionalized, and people will become Buddhists to kind of climb the social ladder, and it will all be over. <laughs> so these, these are, we're lucky at this time that uh, to be a Buddhist is to be a kind of out on the fringes. There's very little social value in being a Buddhist. Yeah, there's, and it's, it's seriously, particularly as a, as a Buddhist monk or as a nun, you know, the, one of the, the biggest drawbacks I find like being in Asia is the kind of automatic worth that is ascribed to you as an individual just because you have a shaved head and a robe. People think you're something special. Whereas in the West, they just think you're a kook. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you get kind of shouted at in the street and all kinds of uh, remarks. Usually something like, in England, it's usually skinhead <laughs> or Hare Krishna. So you say, oh, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. <laughs> but um, so these are very precious times. And um, this coming together of, of different um, expressions where there's both a, a kind of um, an understanding of, of religious forms and a, um, a commitment to them. But yet, the atmosphere that we have at this time is an encouragement, uh, very, uh, a very substantial encouragement and a supportive environment to see beyond that, because um, that's always the, the test, is that to be able to use the form and yet to, to see through it, to be able to um, pick up the convention and merely use it as that. Uh, I was quite struck by one of the things that uh, Rinpoche was saying last night. Um, I, 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 I'm in not endeavoring to give a commentary on everything he said. <laughs> but I, I was struck by something that he, he emphasized last night, which was um, how he talked for a while, if you remember, about um, inside being completely free, without boundaries, letting go of everything, everything, letting go of everything but outside being kind of really strict and proper and kind of following the routine and being quiet and, and kind of doing everything that's uh, um, according to the rules. And uh, probably like many people here, um, uh, in my uh, earlier years through my teens and, and uh, early twenties, I, I wrestled uh, at length with the, the question of freedom. I was a, a late flower. I was born in 56, so I just kind of caught the tail end of the good, <laughs> the good stuff, uh, <laughs> literally. <laughs> and uh, the um, and through through much of my my early years, I really longed for this this quality of freedom, and. Um, Worship this as an ideal. There was this this profound intuition that freedom was possible. That there was this um, potential that we all had as human beings um, to be totally free. That there was something that was that was utterly kind of pure and and uh, uninhibited, uninhibitable inside you know, within us. And yet the experience was one of colliding with endless restrictions and frustrations. And you know as I'm sure it happened with most people here. It's like, first you think it's getting away from your parents, and then you think it's getting away from the law, and then getting away from income restrictions. And one thing after another, that seems to be standing in my way, and if only this wasn't blocking me, then I would be free. And uh, 
so I, I pursued this um, in what ways I could. I was a kind of philosophical anarchist rather than a bomb-throwing anarchist, kind of flower-waving anarchist. <laughs> and uh, took this very seriously, but was just bewildered by no matter how much I tried to be free and be un unhindered by conventions and forms and structures and try to defy, be freeing, being free by defying convention and forms and structures, that there just seemed to be another layer and another layer and another layer, and that one just continually kept meeting with, with um, limitation. So what was striking um, in what Rinpoche was saying last night, it reminded me of my experience of running into um, the Thai forest tradition. Uh, I don't, so probably some of you are not that familiar with, with um, the lineage that, that uh, we're from. Um, and that um, numbers of the peop uh, of, uh, people who've, who've studied and trained in Thailand, Jack Cornfield and others who have studied and trained in the Thai forest tradition, is that um, this is the kind of stiff end of a, of a, a kind of a, an already narrow orth orthodoxy. <laughs> this kind of right down at the kind of strict observance down at the end of an already stiff uh, tradition. And so. Um, but what was my experience was uh, uh, I was traveling in Southeast Asia, and uh, I'd been pursuing this kind of Dionysian lifestyle of uh, uh, eat, drink, and be merry, sex, drugs, rock and roll, dancing on the moon in the moonlight on the beaches, with one hand waving free, etc. And uh, James will get that one. <laughs> I remember the rest of that lyric after <laughs> that night. Um, but uh, feeling, um, you know, really kind of coming to a, a desperate crunch, like this really was not it. Taking off to the northeast of Thailand, um, where no Westerners ever went to, and finding myself in, in a uh, wandering into a, uh, a forest monastery, Ajahn Chah's uh, monastery. Uh, the, uh, the, the branch where his Western monks lived. And what was really bewildering to me and also made me chuckle was that these guys were living this most kind of uh, bizarrely austere life, getting up at three o'clock in the morning, one meal a day, you know, sleeping on kind of thin grass mats, uh, no sex, definitely no sex, no drugs or rock and roll, <laughs> no alcohol even, and you know, maybe and, and a cup of tea twice a week. You know? <laughs> and uh, and yet, these guys were the, the most cheerful people I'd ever met. They were the most kind of at ease and friendly and, um, and uh, uncomplicated people. I think, what have they got to laugh about? How come they're so happy, you know, when the, their life is, the lifestyle is so restricted? And. Uh, Then uh, meeting Ajahn Chah, who is the, the teacher, his picture is up here on the shrine, left-hand picture here. That um, you know, if the the Western monks seemed kind of pretty content with their lot, you know, when meeting him, he seemed like the happiest man in the world. And he'd been doing this for forty years. I thought, lives in the forest, no sex, no drink, no music for forty years. I mean, surely you'd be pretty dried up by. <laughs> By then, but he was a, a man who was who was um, totally happy, totally content. And uh, what struck me was that um, the uh, the fact that uh, the realization that I had been looking for freedom in the wrong place, looking for freedom in that which was inherently bounded, looking for freedom in kind of defying conventions trying to, to not be inhibited by the rules of society or by the um, uh, dictates of my kind of personality and conditioning, and uh, the body even, and uh, constantly feeling frustrated. And it seemed like that even though the, uh, the lifestyle within the, the monastery was extremely you know, restrained and, and uh, defined, that um, what that was all aimed at was, was simplifying the externals so that one would put one's attention directly on where you could be absolutely free. 
So that rather than looking for freedom in the place where you can't find it, the attention was, was directed very, very pointedly at the one place where you can find it, which is, is internally, in the inner world. And rather than the monastic life being one of a kind of uh, negation of the sense world, or kind of a criticism or a hatred of it, or fear of it, that the whole style of, the, of life was built around simplification, a simplicity of living, and an encouragement to direct the attention to that, that uh, inner dimension where, where we could be free. And I remember just at that time, kind of just chuckling to myself, you know, over and over again, like, God, how could I have been so stupid? You know, I totally missed it. Never, never occurred to me, never crossed my mind that it could be that way. And so, uh, to my amazement, I found myself staying. I didn't even think I was going to stay for more than three days <laughs> when I showed up. And uh, not that I want to make this a whole biographical evening, but um, I think that uh, it was really striking how much Rinpoche made of that, that um, in terms of, of freedom, that uh, to understand that external limitation um, and uh, internal freedom you know, do not contradict each other. That actually the, the construct of a retreat and the, 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 um, the routines and schedules, you know, all of the external forms, the, the kind of language, the sort of jargon of Buddhism and the different meditation techniques, all of these structures that we pick up and use, they are, they're designed you know, with one aim in mind, which is to, to help us direct our attention to where we can where we can be free, where we already are totally free. And it's not like even becoming free. It's like discovering that uh, quality of our being which is already totally unhindered, unbounded. And, and this was something that, um, uh, as I stayed on, I began to notice that, that uh, Ajahn Shah made a great deal of, talked about repeatedly, was the relationship between convention and liberation, conventional reality and ultimate reality, and that, um, um, that the things of this world are merely conventions of our own creation. But having established them, then we get lost in them, giving rise to confusion, difficulty, and struggle. Um, but the, the great trick of, of, um, of spiritual practice is to create the conventions, to pick up the conventions, and to use them without, without confusion, to be able to, to uh, recite the Buddha's name, to bow and to chant, to follow a technique, follow a routine, and have all of the, uh, pick up all of the attributes of kind of being a Buddhist, um, and then without being, without any hypocrisy, also recognizing that it's, it's totally empty, that there is no Buddhist. As some, and this is something also Ajahn Sumedho um, has made a, a great deal of over the years. He said, you know, if you think you're a Buddhist, you've totally lost it. And then just like Rinpoche said, is there any Buddhists in the room? You know, dare to put your hand up if you will. <laughs> that uh, the, um, the capacity that we have to both sincerely uh, commit ourselves to something and yet simultaneously to see through it. This is, some, in a way, this is something we find difficult to do in the West. We think, well, either you kind of, you, you grab it and you identify with it and you are that, um, or it, it's meaningless and, it's, uh, and you reject it and that you see that it's not real. But the middle way, which is not just a kind of half-hearted compromise, is the simultaneous holding of the conventional truth and the ultimate truth. And the one, and seeing that the one does not belie the other. There was also a story I was reminded of, um, and as the, the retreat goes on, I suspect that Rinpoche will get into teaching some some uh, guru yoga with uh, Vajrasattva. Is that right? Is that in the plan? Yeah. Okay. I think so. <laughs> What will happen is nobody's knowledge. <laughs> so uh, this was a, 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 an incident that happened at a, a Buddhist conference in Europe. And there was a, um, a Tibetan Lama was there. And uh, 
uh, was teaching, and uh, this was uh, again not to not to make uh, uh, fun of the Germans, but uh, this was actually a German student, and you know, Rinpoche did say they're very serious. This was an extremely serious German student of this Rinpoche, and he'd been uh, teaching um, visualizations of Tara and Tara Puja, the twenty-one Taras, and so. Uh, during the, the course of this, this teaching, the student, um, with great sincerity, put his hand up and, uh, and, you know, and, and asked a, a question. said, Rinpoche, Rinpoche, yeah, yeah, I have this, this, this big doubt. <laughs> yeah, um, you see, all day we do the puja to the Twenty-Vantara, and, uh, you know, I'm very committed to the practice, and uh, I want to do everything right, but, you know, I have the doubt. The doubt is your Tara. Your, does she exist or does she not? I mean, really, Rinpoche, I mean, is she there or not? Because if she is there, then I can, you know, have the full heart. But, you know, if she's not there, then I don't want to do the puja. You know. So please, Rinpoche, once and for all, please. Once and for all, Rinpoche, please. Tara. Does she exist or does she not? <laughs> so then the, the Lama kind of closed his eyes for a moment, thought for a while, and then, then looked at the student and said, she knows that she's not real. <laughs> it is not recorded what the, uh, how the, <laughs> the student responded. <laughs> But um, during the, these days, this will be a kind of dance that we're all challenged to dance. This kind of holding and letting go, both um, seeing the, um, uh, committing oneself wholeheartedly, and then also seeing through. Um, and that uh, I, I think it's important to recognize the power of conditioning that we have, and seeing that that this is really, really uh, a major task that we have in hand is to kind of create, to cultivate, uh, not a belief, but uh, a feeling, if you like, for the middle way, which is like a balance point. The middle way is not just like halfway between two extremes. It's not just like, you know, sort of here's you know, existence and here's non-existence. But, you know, and then the middle way is you know, half and half. You know, it's not like kind of 50-50. But it's more like, it's more like, this is the way I like to explain it anyway, that if you say, you know, existence is over here, and then non-existence is over here, the middle way is the pivot, is the point where the two pivot. And is, is not just kind of this bit, kind of halfway between the two, but is actually the source that both emanate from. So that's just one way of, of, of figuring it. The, um, the question comes up also, you know, many people here are slightly familiar with uh, Tibetan practice, other people are you know, slightly familiar with Theravada practice, Vipassana, and um, in a similar way, there's a, uh, a, you know, the questions arise, you know, someone was, was asking today, well, how do we mesh these two things? And that oftentimes if we are we're looking to, to kind of align the different methodologies, then um, we get really uh, tangled up and confused. I say, well, this one says do this, and you know, he says uh, you should do it this way, and then, but you know, in the Vipassana training I have, he says, you know, do it that way. Um, but um, 
In a similar way, just to, to, I would encourage the sense of, of recognizing that, that every technique, every form of expression is just a convention that we're, we're picking up and that we're, we're using them for a, a, a single goal. And that um, the, uh, the whole aim is, uh, is to use the, the different techniques you know, for, that, for that aim, for um, transcending suffering, for, um, for liberation. That's what it all points towards. So, you know, if you find your, your mind trying to kind of um, figure it all out and, and, uh, and getting confused, you know, try to bear that in mind that, uh, you know, if you're getting con- like contradicting instructions, uh, try not to, to um, say, spend too much energy or attention on uh, making that, uh, trying to get everything to match, because the, the fact is that things in life don't match. You, know, you can't align all the different um, loose ends, but you can go to the place where they meet. And that the, the sure way of, of recognizing you know, what, you're, what you're doing is, as it came up in the question session this afternoon, is to see, well, does it lead to suffering or does it not? And that in a way that's the, I find is the most um, sure guide for, for whether the, the, the practice that you're doing is, is being effective or not, is uh, you know, am I experiencing dukkha? Is there a, is there a feeling of, of suffering? Is there a feeling of, of alienation or difficulty? And if there is, then that's a sh- that, what that means is that, that we're clinging to something, that something's being hung on to, and that um, you know, the, to make the gesture at that time, just to, to loosen up, to let go, and to, uh, to see that we're, um, we're attaching somewhere. So it's like kind of stepping back and kind of scanning your inner domain to see, okay, there's some attachment going on here somewhere. Now, where is it? What's causing this? And then wherever we see the, the, the dukkha arising, the suffering arising, no matter how sort of subtle it might be, then, then that's the place to, uh, to let go, to allow the, you know, the, the dukkha to disperse. It's like Ajahn, Ajahn Chah would say, you know, if you've, got a, if you've got an itch on your leg, you don't scratch your ear, and you scratch where it itches. So that it's like sometimes, you know, we, we, don't, we don't notice where it is that, that the suffering is being generated. Uh, we get so used to kind of doing things in a particular way. So to, to um, just keep taking that, uh, that uh, as a standard and seeing where there's a disease, uh, where there's a feeling of dis-ease, and, and looking to see, okay, well, what's causing this? Where am I hanging on? What's the, what's, uh, the point of heat, the point of, of friction right here? Now, uh, Rinpoche, we already had a, a couple of um, long teaching sessions during today, and so I made an internal vow to myself to try and keep things brief this evening. Um, uh, and so I'll aim to stick to that, but I thought um, I would like to open things up for a, a few questions if people have, and uh, because I know that there's there are some kind of translation problems just in the, the the discussion session that we had, a few people um, were were finding some um, difficulty in kind of understanding some of the of the, uh, of the concepts. So you know, I'm very I'm happy to. To respond to a few questions right now, if people have, yeah. Um, two things. Well, the first is a thank you to you because after we had been talking about impermanence and life itself and so forth, and then you spoke, started to speak late this afternoon. Uh, you talked about the words were something like an event occurring, and suddenly I saw you as the process happening. <laughs> Not a physical being sitting there, but a process happening. And then I looked over at Tony and my God. This is a very good deal. thank you. <laughs> uh, and the, the second thing is Well, like, like I was saying initially, um, it, it hinges a, ro- a lot around understanding the nature of what is the conventional reality. You see, we, we, so much is predicated upon the ins- assumption that there is such a thing as a real living being. 
and that I mean, we see ourselves in terms of, of you know, the limitations of the body and the personality and we define what we are in, within those bounds, right? So, um, you know, then we assume that, that then other beings are similarly these limited little pockets of beingness that sort of float around in the cosmos and that we kind of interact with them. But a lot of what the practice is doing is like de deconstructing that model and seeing that, that rather than taking the, the, um, the body and the personality as the defining feature of, you know, of what we are, then you, you take, like, if you like using Vajrayana language, the Dharmakaya, or, the, or in Theravada language, the Dharma, as the, the basic reference point of what we are. And that the body and the personality are a little kind of teensy-leensy little subset of that. So that it's like relating to your own nature in a very, very different way. So that you see that your body and your personality is rather like a little window that, that Dharma nature is filtered through. And that through the, 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 uh, the uh, matrix of the body and the personality and the, the mind, your mental faculty, then that, that nature of reality can be realized. But that's not just a little kind of little thing tacked on the edge. It's just like that's the, you know, the body and the personality, like the tip of the iceberg. You know, and there's a whole ocean underneath there that the iceberg is, is kind of a, a crystallization of. So um, in the whole understanding of, um, uh, of Mahayana Buddhism, Vajrayana, and you know, in Theravada too, the whole concept of, say, um, live what a living being is. You know, it's like rejigging, you know, reconstituting that whole structure, that whole image. So that there's one, and it's quite, I think, quite a common expression um, in, the, in the Mahayana Buddhist world to say, um, uh, you know, living beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. And how do you save living beings? You, you realize that there are no living beings. That's how you save living beings. You realize they aren't there, they're not there, that's how you save them. <laughs> but to say they're not there, does that mean that then, then um, they don't exist? You say, well, you can't say that either. It's like you're, you're seeing beyond um, that normal sets of limitations. I say, for example, um, one of the ways that I like to, 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 to reflect on this is that, um, you know, in trying to understand our own feeling of limitation and who we are, you know, the body is, is the kind of number one limiter, right? Right? You know, we have little rooms that we put ourselves in and kind of cushions that we sit on and, you know, this is very much the limitation, the physical realm. But if you reflect, three the, the, the body and three-dimensional space, you know, they, they only apply to, 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 rupa, to rupa Kanda, to, the, to the, you know, the, that only applies to the world of, of material form. And that um, inside, outside, here and there, space and uh, spatial relations only apply in terms of form. They don't apply to mind. Mind does not exist in space. Three-dimensional space only exists in relationship to, to physical form. So that if you just, just, <laughs> if you <laughs> endeavor to take out the, the physical element of, of you know, what you are, and then just say, looking at yourself just in terms of mind, then we find the whole quality of boundary kind of breaks up quite considerably. That the whole idea of where I am, where other people are, you, you know, you open, that's why, you know, meditating with your eyes open is so testing because it really looks like there's separate bodies all out there. And there's one here. And, and it's kind of easier to get a feeling of unification with the, with the eyes closed. Because the material form, the sight of material form is giving us the, the, the clue of separateness. But that separateness is entirely dependent on the material world and in, in terms of mind, 
place does not apply. The mind is not anywhere. So, I mean, I'm just, we'll, we'll kind of investigate this and play with this some, some more during the coming week. But in a way of understanding how we, we are actually creating our sense of individuality through our belief in the sense world. And then when we start to, to let go of the sense world, and particularly um, the, uh, the way that we relate to physical form, um, then we start to, to kind of be able to expand the vision of what we are as, as a being. And, and not even see in terms of how we overlap with other beings, but also how you know, it's more like we're of, uh, of a peace with other beings. And so, you know, that the, um, the question you ask about, um, like, say, Dilgo uh, Kiense doing, you know, Guru, uh, uh, Puja to Guru Rinpoche, I mean, the, the whole worth of that kind of deity yoga and, uh, and Guru yoga is that you recognize that quality w within yourself. And part of it is like expanding your, the picture of yourself to recognize, hey, those qualities have already or, always been in me. But because I was so fixated on me and my problems, my life, and my past, and my future, and my hopes and my fears, that I didn't see that that space was there. So it's like you're, you're um, expanding your, um, your perceptions of what is, is uh, uh, your own nature if you like, and you're using the qualities of an external kind of heroic figure, a kind of a spiritual archetype like Guru Rinpoche, Padmasambhava, as kind of embodying great qualities to be like a mirror for you to recognize, hey, those same qualities actually can be found within me already. So that it's like, yes, Guru Rinpoche is there, but then he's not there. And like, I'm here, but I'm not here. You know, and it's like you're you're just seeing that those limitations of, of individuality are conventions that, that, that uh, have a relative value, but no absolute value. And that's not a belief. And again, like, to go back to the thing about, I was saying about Anicca Dukkha Anatta, what I'm saying now, this is not like a, a kind of diktat or a, you, you should believe this. But these are all, uh, all Buddhist teachings are always put out in terms of here are themes to contemplate, pick this up, follow it, see if it rings true. And so that it's like, okay, well, does this make sense? How is this true? How can I pick this up and play with it? Is that helpful? I, I just thought of something that I wanted to toss back on. <laughs> Yeah, isn't life grand?
Um, well, I, I, I will. I'm. Hmm? Uh, yeah. yeah, Catherine was asking about um, just defining some terms like uh, rigpa and mind, mind essence, and so on. Um, and I will be informed by um, Tashi and, and uh, Tony if I get this wrong. But um, for a start, Rigpa is the Tibetan word for the Pali Vija, which means knowing. Uh, its opposite, Avija, is usually translated as ignorance. Um, so, uh, and that Vija is, is a kind of knowing with a capital K. So it's like the act of, of knowing as the quality of awareness itself. Um, and Avija uh, is you know is most famous for being the cause of all the trouble in uh, the Pali Buddhist world. So, at the beginning of it's most it's more commonly known like at the, at the beginning of dependent origination, avijja pachaya sankara. When there's ignorance, then um, duality comes into existence, sankara, and so on. But uh, that's probably helpful for every. I actually only found that out today. I didn't realize that um, rigpa was a translation for vijja. And then, um, so ma rigpa, ma is a negative. So ma rigpa is avicca. So not rigpa. So like um, that, uh, it's not anything terribly mysterious. It's very simple, but it's very, very profound quality. But so vijja would be an attribute of the enlightened mind or the pure mind. And uh, it's a kind of synonym, I would say, for uh, transcendent wisdom. They're, they're all kind of of a piece. Like in the Dhamma Chaka Sutta, the Buddha says, Chakung Udapadi, Nyanang Udapadi, Vijja Udapadi, Aloka Udapadi. Like vision arose, uh, knowledge arose, wisdom arose, light arose. They're all kind of synonyms for each other. And it seems as though Rinpoche uses mind specifically to refer to like conditioned mind, uh, thinking, perception. So it seems like within the context of what, what Rinpoche is saying, like that mind is uh, is a an aspect of that is uh, confused. It's what you have when you've fallen into samsara. It's the kind of knowing that you have when you've fallen into samsara. And what Rinpoche spent a long time doing this afternoon was equating that with confusion. You can call it confusion if you want. It would come out to be the same thing. So it, it's um, you know, say in the, the common parlance that I would use, I'd say conditioned mind. That is, it is, it's like where you have given substance or value or solidity to your perceptions, your emotions, thoughts. Um, you, you, you've made it. You've, you've given those a rea- ascribed those a reality they don't possess. So therefore, confused. And then mind essence, um, I'll leave that for Rinpoche to expound upon. Because uh, you know, I could give my own ideas, but he's probably using the word in the same way, so we, we didn't really get to that. Uh. Yeah, um, that, uh, as I understood it, he was talking about um, the... Uh, that there are these different character qualities that are an innate part of the of the pure mind, if you like, which are emptiness and um, clarity, which you know I was saying um, we we would tend to use like radiance or luminosity or, or um, and then the and then the third one was the the, the fusion of those two. You'll have to ask Rinpoche on that one. So I, I would say they're the same, but I don't really want to get into translating him when he's not here. <laughs> but
but that's how I understood it. So that there's, you know, you've basically got the the mind which is aware and knowing, and then its its objects. And when there is um, confusion, when there's ignorance, then um, the the mind gets entangled in those objects and confused by them and caught up. And when there's no ignorance, then it sees those objects clearly and without any without any obstruction. And so that's what was called kind of pure appearance. Sure. About characteristics and emptiness, which you asked about. Um, in this particular case, characteristics refers to something that is applied by rational or conceptual mind. Emptiness doesn't have anything belonging to conceptual mind in it. That's what it means. But emptiness, of course, has the quality of the fact of openness and all the rest of it. It's just technical terminology, that's all. The characteristic has the specific meaning of being something that's done by conceptual mind, a conceptual definition. Emptiness doesn't contain that kind of stuff. Okay, thank you. Okay, so I don't want people to have indigestion. Okay, so, yeah. Um, well, say this morning uh, we did, and we will, I'll f- we'll finish with it this evening. Maybe the um, the sharing of blessings. Um, you know, the the the, the kind of um, conscious sharing of the goodness of your life on a daily basis for the benefit of all beings. You know, may all may all, may all beings friendly, indifferent, or hostile. You know, the you know the the good and the bad and the ugly. May they all benefit from the the blessings of my life. You know, so there's a conscious dedication of merit. I think what's what's the slight difference is that, whereas in Theravada it's kind of more implicit. Uh, in in the Mahayana tradition, it's become a kind of emblem, a sort of tribal emblem, of that that um, particular lineage or tradition. But it's significant that actually the four Bodhisattva vows derive from the four noble truths. That um, I don't want to get into too much Buddhist history, but it seems as though after a few centuries, things had drifted somewhat towards the monastic order being kind of isolated, sort of religious priesthood, a kind of princely, kind of religious aristocracy, and somewhat alienated from the um, from the general public. And then the people, the kind of general people, were disempowered because of the elevated status of the monastics, and. Um, the um, the Mahayana movement, um, kind of part of it was um, trying to break away from that. It has turned the 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 the, the sangha back into the a Brahmin kind of priesthood, and that was the Mahayana movement was a breakaway trying to get back to the original um, spirit of what the Buddha was teaching. And one of the ways they did that was to make very explicit the uh, expression of one's aspiration to dedicate one's spiritual efforts to the benefit of all beings. Um, what you have in Theravada is much more of the um, the direction of one's energies towards uh, liberation of the individual, and it being implicit that that's the best way you can help all beings is for you to work on your life, you know, a hundred percent, and then when you've transcended samsara and broken free from ignorance, then you will naturally become an incredible source of blessings for the world around you. So, um, the Mahayana expression of things kind of ch- arose spelling that out much more directly. So, what you have is you take the Four Noble Truths, and, and it's like the first Noble Truth, you know, there is Dukkha. 
that's extended into the public arena saying, all beings experience dukkha, living beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Then the second truth, uh, afflictions are limitless, uh, I vow to cut them all off. It's like there is the cause of dukkha, um, you know, afflictions, uh, um, self-centered craving is the cause of dukkha. So within me as an individual, but say within the greater arena, afflictions are limitless, I vow to cut them all off. The third and the fourth are, are, are kind of put in a different order. So you get in the Bodhisattva vows, you have um, the, the um, Dharma doors are limitless, I vow to accomplish them. That's the, the expression of the, the fourth noble truth about the, um, the Eightfold Path. There is the, the Eightfold Path, there is the way to the end of suffering, um, which is to be cultivated. And then the, so the third noble truth is that there is the cessation of suffering. The, the Bodhisattva vow is, the Buddha way is supreme, I vow to accomplish it. So that it's quite explicit that it's like an extension into an external arena of those, um, those truths. Just as the, uh, the Heart Sutra is a kind of, um, was also derived from the Four Noble Truths but in the opposite direction. And it's interesting how in the Mahayana tradition they've taken both of those and they kind of have them side by side. So they say there's no suffering, no origin, no cessation and no path. Right? No attainment and no way. Right? So you have that, no suffering, no origin, no cessation, no path on this side and you have all beings are suffering, etc., etc. You have a kind of an extension into the public, kind of grander world and a dissolution into, nothing, into emptiness on the other side. In Theravada, both of those are ex uh, kind of implicit in the original expression of the Four Truths. And that as you work with them and contemplate them, you would come to those insights and work with them in that way. But um, like the Mahayana tradition kind of took those and teased them out and spelled them in a more kind of um, visible manner. Okay, so I think that's probably enough for the evening. <laughs>